Good evening. Welcome. Um, hey, a couple quick announcements. If, if you have your bulletin, if there's a couple things in there just that I want to draw, draw your attention to. Um, on, the, on the far back side there, just a reminder, we're going to be having uh, next week is Holy Week, and so our schedule is going to be a little different. We're not going to be having our normal midweek service, um, but uh, the, the choir and orchestra is going to be performing a special Easter program in our main auditorium just across the hall. And then Friday we will be meeting in here, but it won't be just our normal Wednesday night crew. It'll be a little bit of a different group. This is our Good Friday service, and that's what's mentioned on the back there. So we're starting at 6.30 in the main auditorium here. And it's going to be kind of a service of uh, um, experience. We're going to be doing a few experiential uh, things in here, um, peppered with, with worship and teaching, and kind of really preparing our hearts for, for Easter. So hopefully you guys will make... Um, uh, make yourselves available for that. And then the, the week after, we'll be starting our last series for the spring here, and before we take a break in the summer, and we're going to be doing a series on the Old Testament. That's also in your, in your bulletin there, looking at this idea of um, making sense of the Old Testament. How, how do we, as New Testament believers, um, you know, the Old Testament makes up like 70%, 77% of the book uh, of the Bible, and um, this is the only Bible that Jesus ever read. And so it, it would probably be good for us to kind of have a good understanding of it. And oftentimes, we, we don't. We kind of wrestle with, well, I don't really know how that, how that translates to us, how we make sense of that. So we're just going to take four weeks and kind of try to walk, walk through some of that. We're in a series right now, and we're finishing up tonight. It'll be our, our last night, a four-week series um, in which every week we've taken offering. And so I don't want to forget this week as well, and I was just about to. So um, ushers, come forward, please, if you would. And um, we've, we've already prayed, so you can go ahead and pass those out. And um, I, I almost forgot, thank you for reminding me. The series that, that we've been looking at is really looking at this, the cross, the cross of Christ. And reflections on the cross, again, preparing our hearts for Good Friday, preparing our hearts for the greatest celebration in the Christian calendar, Easter, and, and so we've looked at this, you know, different ideas. Week one, we kind of looked at the whole idea of, okay, if, like, why is the cross even necessary? It seems, if, if I don't have a pretty good, solid theology of human fallenness, human brokenness, rebellion, the, you know, the big S word, sin, and I don't have a really robust concept of, of a God who, who is completely holy, who is completely other than that, what happens when these two realities come into contact with one another? How, how can these two things be brought together? Because I'm made to be in God's presence, but it's God's presence that'll wipe me out. And so we looked at this idea that of the whole concept of redemption. We've been reflecting on the cross, saying the cross is the, the singular point in history in which God dealt with that great problem of our sin in relationship to, to his holiness. And so this last week, what I want to do is, is take a little bit more of a personal look at just how we, how we live our lives in, in, in light of maybe what I would suggest is the most difficult thing that any one of us will ever encounter in all of life. And that's suffering. That's pain, hurt, evil. Um, I think it's probably the most you know, retractable issue out there. It's, it's such a hard thing to get to deal with even, even on our own. And there's so many different responses to suffering. If you, if you go back to the ancient world, the, you know, the world of the Bible, the Old and New Testament, there were, there were different responses to evil. There were, there were some people called Stoics 
And we still have this word that, that lingers around. Oh, yeah, the person's very stoic because it was in their response to suffering. Their idea was we live in a world which is controlled by natural forces that don't really give a rip about you or your freedom or your happiness, and you just need to keep a stiff upper lip. You need to kind of deal with it because this world's out of control. You're going to get hurt, and you need to just toughen up and have a uh, stiff upper lip. That's stoicism or this stoic idea. There's, a, there's one Stoic um, philosopher or writer, um, his name is Epictetus, and he wrote this. He said, what harm is there while you are kissing your child, he means at bedtime at night, to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die. Isn't that a nice little bedtime story? Wouldn't you love to hear that, right, you know, before you go to bed? But that was the world they lived in. It was this idea, life, life is hard. In the ancient world, do you realize that 50% of children did not live past the age of 10? 50% of children did not live past the age of 10. They understood suffering probably better than we do. Another group in the ancient world were called the Epicureans. Now, both of these groups are, are referenced in Scripture. These are, uh, these are common um, kind of philosophical schools of thought. And the, the Epicureans... Um, they, they saw suffering too, they had the same data, but their response is, well, if life is meaningless and it's all awful, might as well live it up, baby, right? Indulge. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he's kind of addressing that idea that's creeping into the church. He quotes kind of the bumper sticker of the Epicurean message when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Okay. This is sort of the um, dead poet society kind of, like, tomorrow we're worm food, so live it up now, whatever you need to do, because there is no meaning. The evil, ultimately death that comes, there, there is no purpose for it. There is no meaning to it. Now, the modern secular world also has a response to suffering as well. The modern sort of secular, you might call it humanistic or uh, you know, different terms we can put on, but kind of the modern secular response would say, Everything, including life and beauty and truth and goodness and death, everything is meaningless. It's all meaningless. So, you know, figure out a way to pacify yourself. If you want to do the Stoic route, the Epicurean route, whatever, just don't hurt anyone, but life itself is meaningless. See, all these views suggest two things. Number one, that evil is just the way it is. Go with it. And you can't do anything about it. It's just the world is hardwired to hurt. The nature is red in tooth and claw, as has been said. And then number two, suffering. Um, suffering is meaningless. There, there's no meaning behind it because there's no meaning giver to any of it. Now, according to the Bible, evil, evil is, is, a, is a foreign introduction. It's a parasite to, to God's good world. And evil will not be in God's ultimate eternal world, the new heavens and the new earth. Scripture sees evil as, as a satanic and a destructive force in God's good creation. We talked about this whole idea of, uh, of, of evil and what that looks like in a series we did a little while ago called Being Human, where we looked at how, how evil corrupts even every aspect of what it means to be human. So in that sense, we are called to oppose evil, right? I mean, if it's a foreign thing to our world. Well, the Bible also rejects the idea that, that suffering is, is just meaningless. It has no, no real purpose, and you can just kind of you know, pacify yourself with whatever uh, you want to do, whatever works, keep a stiff upper lip or overindulgence or whatever it might, 
it might be. Now, Jesus, when Jesus speaks of suffering, it's really, really interesting. Jesus contradicts these two routes here. Jesus, at, at some times, even spoke of human suffering as being something that God would use for a purpose. That does away with the whole meaningless thing. Um, John eleven four, 4, it'll be used, quote, for God's glory. He goes on to say, and that the Son of God, speaking of Jesus, might be glorified through it. In John 9, 3, he says, um, so that the works of God might be displayed in individual people. So Jesus says, evil's not meaningless. I'm sorry, suffering's not meaningless. Evil is an alien intrusion. But I, I don't want to give the impression um, that, that, that people of the Bible therefore never wrestled with this. Okay, they just, okay, sure, evil's, evil's alien and suffering, you know, is kind of, it is going to be a part of life, but there's a certain response to it. No, no, Christians, people of God, have wrestled throughout the century of, of uh, trying to make sense of all of the suffering that, that they have to go through, um, struggle to understand, doubt, question God. See, the problem of, of suffering, it's not a new question. The writers of the Bible, and this is, you guys, this is one thing that, that I love about Scripture, and it's so different from so many of the other ancient sacred texts. It never runs, it never whitewashes, it never sweeps under the rug, suffering and evil and pain. It, it hits it just head on. It deals with it, with all of its ugliness. And the Bible is full of all of these direct expressions of, of, of people's anguish, people's confusion over it. Why do the wicked prosper? Surely I've kept my hands you know, clean in, in vain. It is meaningless, maybe. They question it in so many different ways. Sometimes rage. Sometimes the writers of the Bible have rage about it and confusion about the suffering and the pain. You go to the wisdom literature, you know, like the book of Job, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, it's full of this idea of people going, I don't get it, God. Help me make sense of this. It just, I don't understand why the world is the way it is. Psalm 22.1, the psalmist is writing to God, why are you so far from saving me? You ever feel like that? It's like, are my prayers hitting the ceiling? Are you even there? So far from my cries of anguish. He goes on to say, my God, I cry out by day, you don't answer. By night, and I find no rest. I'm scorned by everyone. I'm despised by people. All who see me, they mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. You know, the whole idea of, if you're really serving God, boy, why isn't God taking care of you? What a joke, this whole life with God thing. He said, even, even other people are seeing kind of the irony of this, God. Help me make sense of this. And so tonight what I want to do, this isn't, you know, oftentimes, you know, we look at, okay, what are some of the philosophical ideas of it? You know, can we make sense of it? That's not what we're doing tonight. What I want to do tonight is, is look at what I think is a long tradition, a long history of looking at the cross and, and finding in that resources so that we can actually face suffering, but, but, but with hope. Face suffering with creativity, rather, rather than just bitterness, rather than just total despair. And so, and so what I want to do tonight is ask this question. This is on your bulletins if you have them with you. There's a couple blanks to fill in there if you want to as we go. How does the cross of Christ 
speak to our pain and suffering? How does the cross of Christ speak to our pain and suffering? And there, and there are six categories. These six categories come from um, John Stott, who he served as, uh, um, as the rector of All Saints Church in London for a number of years, a great Christian minister and evangelist for a number of years before he passed away just a few years ago. I'm borrowing these six categories from him on these reflections on the cross and our experience with suffering. And the first one, if you want to fill in the blank, is um, it is to... F- uh, it is fuel to patient endurance. Suffering is, is the fuel to patient, patient endurance. Um, even though suffering has to be recognized as evil and therefore resisted, I think, appropriately, still I think you know, there comes a time where, where we have to realistically accept and deal with difficulty and pain in our lives. And it's at these times that, that looking to Christ, looking to the cross, I think, is, is so significant. You know, we could, we could spend a whole hour in here, a whole message, just looking at the sufferings of Jesus. I mean, think about these for just a second. He was born in a, in a feeding trough. He had to leave his, his home. He had to flee infanticide. He was a refugee in Egypt. He faced anti-Semitism. He lived in a poor family. He worked as an obscure manual laborer. He lost his dad. He had to go through a ministry where he wept when his best friend Lazarus died, where he wept over Jerusalem, where he was hungry and he was thirsty. He was tired. When they cut him, he bled. His community rejected him. His immediate family thought that he had a a mental disorder and tried to take him away. His closest friends abandoned him. One of his students took his more intimate knowledge of his teacher and betrayed him with that. And then they hung him, and he died. No wonder scripture calls him a a man of sorrow is the language that's used. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 7 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about Jesus' life on earth being characterized by loud cries and tears? You know, the Apostle Peter wrote in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2, and he encouraged specifically one, one, one group because they were kind of the most you know, demoralized of of the, of the society, least rights, Christian people who found themselves in, in, in slavery, not American 18th century concept of slavery, but uh, indentured servitude, still a very cruel process. And specifically, Christians in indentured servitude during the Neronian persecution, things are like awful for these people. And he writes them and he says, look, you, okay, so you're an apprentice of, of Jesus, okay? And he says, now think about this. Jesus is sort of the ultimate picture of a guy who who undeservedly suffered in pretty significant ways for doing good, not for doing any evil. And and he never complained and he never hit back. And he goes, okay, so given that, given the fact that you're a student of his and you're called to be his apprentice and he calls you to take up your cross and follow him, what do you suppose that looks like then as you do this whole indentured servitude thing? Could you imagine doing it without complaining and without hitting back, even though you will be undeservedly persecuted in different ways? See, it it fueled their patience 
and patient endurance because they remembered that they had no less claim than, than did their master. Remember Jesus said, the Last Supper, he said, no student is above his teacher. What you've seen me do, you do likewise. And they remembered, oh yeah, we serve, we serve a guy like that. Um, a movie came out back in 1979. I remember my... Uh, my mom took me to it. I was probably 79 or 1980, something like that. Um, yeah, anyone, anyone remember the old movie theater on college? And I think it was Drake. It's like where Whole Foods is now. There, there was a shopping center there, and there was this old movie theater in there. It was, I don't know what year it was wiped down, but there was a theater, and the rest of my mind is way off from being a kid. But um, there was a movie put out by the, by the book um, Johnny. It was just entitled Johnny. And it, and it was the true life story of Johnny Erickson Tata. A lot of you guys will know her story, her life. And it was this true life story. 1967 is what the movie is recounting that moment. 1967, she's this beautiful, young, athletic teenager. And she, she had this terrible diving accident in the, in the Chesapeake Bay, which left her a quadriplegic. And she's told her story thousands of times. And what I love about it is like, there, there, there's so much honesty about it. You know, she talks about the bitterness that she had. She talks about the anger. Um, she talks about times of rebellion in her life and, and just despair. But then she also talks about how, how gradually she learned to see the sovereignty of God. And she goes, okay, I don't get it all, but I'm not going to rebel against God just because I don't understand it. But she tells this, she tells this, and of course she's gone on, you know, she does like mouth painting and, you know, she's this international speaker who's, who's touched countless thousands of people's lives. But she tells this story early on, three years after the accident, it happened in 67. So three years after that, she's laying in bed after the accident and Cindy is her best friend. And um, Cindy's sitting by her bedside and speaking of Jesus, and Cindy said this, you know, he, he was paralyzed too. And, and Johnny just kind of, what are you talking? And, and then all of a sudden, like, it hit her. That she realized, you know, she said, it, it never occurred to me before that on the cross, Jesus was in similar pain to mine. He was unable to move. Now, for a different reason, his hands and feet were, were nailed, his limbs wrenched, but, but virtually paralyzed. And finally she goes, oh, he knows. He knows what this is like. I have a God who suffers. And all the, it doesn't answer all the questions. But all of a sudden, I serve a God who knows what it's like to not be able to be moved, to be affixed to something that they can't get out of, they can't get away from. And the crazy part is he actually could have, he could have gotten away from it, but he did it voluntarily. A second way that I think the cross speaks to our own pain and suffering, number two, it is the path to mature holiness. Again, it's important to start with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, listen to the words of the author. He says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, the author of their salvation, here's the key word, perfect, through what he suffered. Similarly, Hebrews 5.8 says, although he, speaking of Jesus, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, both of these verses speak of 
the process by which Jesus um, was, quote, made perfect or, or learned obedience, and, and both credit it, credit that process to suffering, the idea of going through some sort of difficulty or pain. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect and became perfect, because in Hebrews chapter 4, the author like emphasizes really clearly, Jesus had no sin. So it's cl- that's clearly not what he's saying. And it's not saying he was disobedient and he became obedient, but it means that he demonstrated his full obedience, okay? His, his obedience went all the way to the end. It, it, it hit the target. It got all the way out there. See, I can be obedient, like, for a while, right? I can be obedient, you know, for a little bit or, you know, a, a little bit longer. This weekend, um, I, I rarely get on Facebook, but uh, someone had sent me a link. It's, oh, you, 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 you got to look at this video. And there's this video. Have you guys seen this of this dog who is, like, the most well-trained dog in the world? Did you see this? And, uh, and, and this guy, it's like a two-minute video or something I'd show here if we had an extra two minutes. But, and, and this dog is like so well, there's this ball that is the dog's favorite thing in the world. You can see the dog looking at it like, I want that ball, the squeaky ball. And the guy says, okay, slow. And so the dog, then he goes, stop, backwards. Okay, turn around, don't look at it. Look at do this. And this dog is like obeying for two minutes. And then he goes, okay, go up to it. And he goes, you can, you can touch it, but, or you can... I don't know, you can touch it, but you can't grab it. So the dog's nose is like touching. It's just like, I want this ball so much. And, you know, he said, okay, you know, put your mouth on it. No, just stay there. Now, when I count to three, one, two, two and a half, ten, thirteen. And the dog's like, (laughs) that's really, finally just waits forever. Like, by the end, you're going to give the dog the ball, for crying out loud. You know, he finally goes three, and just, (laughs) he just goes after it. Like, oh, I've been waiting, you know, I've been waiting for this ball. But I look at that dog, and like, I look at mine, and my dog, like, I can get him to stay for, like, eight seconds. I'm like, stay, stay, stay. And I have to keep saying, stay, stay. You know, eight seconds, and he, he, he hits it, you know. This dog has, like, his obedience has gone to the wall, is the idea. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus' obedience, he was made perfect. He was made, in that sense, not that he was imperfect and became perfect or disobedient and became obedient. It's that his obedience went all the way to the wall. There was no stopping. There was never a point at which he was disobedient or at which he didn't reach that, that final goal on the target of where, of where he is. Listen to the words um, of uh, James, James, the half-brother of Jesus. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, that's suffering, right? That's that point of suffering we're talking about. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, here's the end of the wall piece. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Isn't that so cool? The Bible, as far as I know, mainly uses three kind of like illustrations or pictures to talk about the way in which God is shaping our lives through kind of Sometimes a negative, you know, thing, you know, some like a, a difficulty or some way. The, uh, the first one is a father. He, um, he says it's like a father disciplining his child. Um, and then, you know, they go on to say, you know, a, a father only, in that culture, it's talking about the idea of having a, a child who's actually his, belongs to him, and then one that's just kind of like, in, you know, around the area. He goes, you know, he's going to discipline his child because he cares who he turns out to be. He's not going to discipline those kids because they're not his. He disciplines them because he loves them. The second uh, metaphor or, or picture is a, a metal worker refining silver or gold. 
This is, this is the furnace of affliction, the whole idea of purifying metal, burning off all the junk and all the stuff that, that isn't as strong, isn't, isn't as uh, beautiful and true. And then the third picture is a, a gardener, a gardener who prunes a vine. And you think about, you know, like we're coming up to spring here. I'm so excited to see like little leaves coming out. We have an aspen tree right in our front yard and all those little, my kids think they're, um, Oh, what do you call those things? The little many-legged, you know, furry caterpillar, furry caterpillar things, because it's, it's covered with that. Uh, and I'm just thinking, like, leaves are coming any day, and I'm so excited. Spring's here. But, you know, pruning prior to that, you know, last season, at the end of it, it can be such a drastic process. It can look cruel. I mean, because you, you, you cut that back so far, it, it just it looks jagged. It looks almost naked. It looks so... Um, hampered, but, but when spring comes around, summer comes around, the flourishing that happens is, is something that could not have happened without that pruning. And see, all of these are, all of these, are these kind of drastic examples dis- describe a negative process, right? You've, you've got disciplining, you've got refining, you've got pruning, but all three introduce a, a positive um, result, the child's good, the metal's purity, the vine's fruitfulness. And see, here's the point. The existence of pain in your life does not prove the absence of love from God. And we know this even just from our own examples. Think of a surgeon. A surgeon will allow pain to bring healing. Now, does, does he want to inflict pain? No. But, but there's good on the other side, right? Um, a therapist will actually, with his clients, uh, go to, to very sad, hard, dark memories in order to bring about growth. Now, does a therapist want to bring about pain? No. But, but there's good on the other side. If, if you're a parent, or you've, ever, or you've ever been a parent before, and, and, and your kid is being noisy, selfish, irritating, brat driving you crazy and, and you just, you're at the end of your rope, um, do you want to cause your child pain? Well, maybe, but no. Bad moments, maybe. No, but we do it because, because there's good on the other side of it. Now, the Bible does not teach, of course we need to say, does not teach that all suffering is God-disciplining somebody. Some Christians get really goofy with this whole idea. All we have to do is remember Job's friends, you know, these idiot counselors of his who came along and they said, well, I I can tell you why things are hurting. It's your fault. God's doing it because, you know, there's something wrong with you. And of course, God comes along and condemns this overly simplistic, bad theology. That is simply not the case. But here's the point. God will not waste suffering in your life. He uses it to mature. He uses it to refine. He uses it to shape and to make you whole. Um, I remember this last year, I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, we had to go to the strep throat, like ran through our whole house. You know how awful that is when like, it just goes all over. And, and one of the kids, especially Brielle, has like a real susceptibility to strep throat. She gets it. It's just awful. I mean, she just, she thinks, you know, it's the end of the world for her. And... Um, and so we had to go in, you know, and see, see the doc. So we're in Dr. Kaufman's office, and we're sitting there, and, and, it's, and so he, 
you know, he says, okay, you're, we're going to do shots for everyone. And these shots were like, they hurt. There wasn't like a little tiny needle. This is like a huge honking needle. So the doctor pulls out the big needle and, you know, you kind of bend over because there's a certain place you have to get it and everything. And so, and so, you know, they, they give it to her and her poor, you know, tender little pink skin and her eyes get big and she just, cr- you know, cries and, you know, you just feel awful. Like, this is the one that you're, you spent your whole life protecting and all. And I just picked her up and said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I said, this was your mom's idea. I would have done pills. You know, I would never do that to you. <clears throat> Listen to the words of John Stott. Stott says, Biblical teaching and personal experience combine to teach us that suffering is both the path to holiness and maturity. There is always the indefinable something about people who have suffered. They have a fragrance which others lack. They exhibit the meekness and gentleness of Christ. One of the most remarkable statements Peter makes in his first letter is that, quote, he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. First Peter 4.1. He goes on to write, Physical affliction, Peter seems to be saying, actually has the effect of making us stop sinning. This being so, I sometimes wonder whether the real test of our hunger for holiness is our willingness to experience any degree of suffering, if only thereby God will make us holy. Kind of an interesting thought. Number three, how the cross of Christ speaks to our pain and suffering. The third way is that it is catalytic to fruitful service. Um, ever, ever wonder why so many of Jesus' contemporaries, including his closest friends, his disciples, his buddies, the people who, who hung out with them, just struggled to settle whether or not he was the Messiah? I mean, you get that sometimes? I mean, he was doing all the marks, and, you know, John the Baptist, I mean, the one who was maybe the boldest, he's in prison, he even kind of goes, Is, are, really? Are you sure? Because, you know, everyone had questions in so many ways. And I would suggest that, that the reason why most of his contemporaries, best friends included, um, struggled to come to the understanding that Jesus was who he was um, intimating to be was because... Um, the way in which they read the Old Testament prophecies about them was with one eye shut. And what I mean by that is they saw what they wanted to see because they were a result of their particular time in history. They were living in a time where they had oppressors. They were living at a time not like us where we have great materialism. They lived in a time where there were foreign oppressors over them. So when they read scripture, that was their lens. And as they, you know, they read some of the great servant passages. Man, when the servant shows up, you know what the servant's going to do? Isaiah 42, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, all of these. He's going to be high and lifted up. The language is exalted. And he's going he's to do so much. Water is going to pour out in the desert where it was dry. Things are going to grow. The walls are going to be, beauty is going to be reestablished. Um, the Messiah or the Lord's servant He's going to be high and lifted up, exalted, as Isaiah 42 says. But what they didn't realize is Jesus said the same thing. I'm going to be high and lifted up, but it's going to be high and lifted up on a cross. See, they, they thought that, that suffering would be conquered by, by brute force. We'll use the world's force in it and just be more than they are. We'll be stronger than they are and attack them. Rather than 
the servant absorbing all of the suffering, thereby becoming weak in order to conquer it. And so Jesus did this unique thing. He took the servant idea, who's going to, servant of the Lord, he's going to restore everything. And he took suffering, like in Isaiah 53, and he said, it's the suffering servant. And that's what I would suggest is huge, you guys. I don't, if, if there's any concept that was, that first century Palestinian Jews were more blind to, and I would suggest 21st century Western Americans are more blind to, is this concept of suffering servant. Listen to Isaiah 53, what Jesus added to the concept of the servant of the Lord who would do all these great things. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took all our pain and bore all our suffering. See, suffering and service always go together. Jesus said in John 12, unless an, uh, unless an ear of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it does... It produces many seeds. See, the cross tells us that, that death is more than just a way of life. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, dying to self. Absolutely, that's an integral biblical concept, death to self. But it's more than just a way of life. It's really the secret of fruitfulness, Jesus seems to be saying. I got an email this last week from Pastor Mike Walker, who, who uh, oversees our local outreach, serves 6.8 and he, he was telling in this email how Serve 6.8 uh, disaster leadership team was down in Denver this, uh, this week. I, I want to say it was Monday or Tuesday. And um, they had been invited by the Colorado State Senate to accept recognition on behalf of Timberline Church and Serve 6.8 for all the recovery efforts for, for the flood of this last year, 2013. And... What, what was really cool, Mike was saying, is that the senators had passed this formal resolution thanking all of the organizations who, who were involved. And, and Mike said it was just kind of surreal to, to sit there and hear these two senators stand up and talk about Timberline Church and talk about Serve 6.8 from the Senate floor. And he said it was, it was like so humbling. And, you know, kind of as, as he's been, you know, talking about that, we've been talking about... Do you know why that kind of service what was recognized by the Colorado State Senate? It's not because Timberline's a cool church. It's, it's not because any other church is impressive. It's not because Serve 6.8, who they have at their helm. It's, it's none of that stuff. It's because they witnessed individual people who sacrificed and they entered into someone else's suffering. And they were committed to these long-term recovery of the community from disaster. And he said when they, right before they walked out, they got a standing ovation from the Senate floor. See, the greatest single secret is suffering service. Talk, talk to any evangelist who's worth his salt, who's, who's, who's been around any missionary who's been somewhere in a hard place for a long time, and they will tell you that this, this is the secret to effectiveness, is willing to suffer alongside someone, and if necessary, even to die. 
See, it may not be, you know, we quickly go to literal kind of stuff. Okay, well, fortunately, thankfully, God didn't call me to be a missionary. I don't, I don't have to do that sort of thing. But the suffering servant thing, Jesus said, if you're my apprentice, and remember, apprenticeship is doing your life as Christ would do it if he were you. Being my apprentice means death to self and suffering servant as you go. You know, it, it might be death of popularity, you know, for you to authentically proclaim and speak the biblical gospel to people around you. It might be the death of pride, you know, by not relying on kind of your own cleverness as you reach out to people, but relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. It might be the death of material comfort in your life as God calls you to, to reach out to serve people in different ways by just adopting a more simple lifestyle. But as Jesus said, a seed must die in order to multiply. Number four, how the cross of Christ speaks to our pain and suffering, it is the hope of final glory. It's the hope of final glory. See, the reality of God, the perspective of God on the other side, okay, when we think about the weight of, when we think about what God has in store for us, when we talk about his, his plans for, for new heavens, new earth, new creation, what God has in mind, the end of the wall for us, what it looks like when, when, when we get there, I think it'll take our breath away. Because I think God is up to something so big that we can't even get our minds around it. And this idea, it, it, it comes throbbing through the pages of the New Testament writers. Listen, listen to how Paul puts this. Therefore, Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, though inwardly we're being made new every day. And he goes on to say, when he's talking about the, the, the difficulties, he uses this phrase, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. What he's saying is put them on a scale. All the stuff that, that just weighs you down, that you just think, man, what? no one else deals with this. Why me? What, why have I lost my health? Why are my relationships wrecked? Why do I struggle with this? Why was I abused? Why, why this? He says, put, put all that stuff on a scale. Put eternity before anything that you're going through. And Paul says, it can only be described as light and momentary. Now, by the way, the guy who wrote those words didn't have an easy life. Paul was whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned. Now, if you know what stoned is, it's a death sentence. The fact that you're, you're alive after stoning is because it just didn't quite work. He was opposed. He was ridiculed. He was persecuted. He was shipwrecked. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. And finally, he was executed, and he had nothing. And he, was, and he described all of that as, quote, light and momentary for the sake of Jesus, for, for, for what lies beyond, for the weight of glory. See, this is a claim about reality. This is a claim about the way things are. Um, I, was, I was trying to think how, how I could kind of try to show you this in in the most concrete way that I can think of. And I want us to take a look at this little video. This is a video, um, anybody have seen this? It's just about one minute, it's real short. But it's, it's this little girl going down a ski jump for the very first time 
in her life, and it scares the wits out of her. She's at the top. She's up in the box, in the ski box. And I want you to see the contrast of the before, while she's in the ski box, and then when she's down on the ground. It's, it's just sort of a little parable about life now and then on the other side. Take a look at the screen. She's fine. Have fun. I'll do it. Well... Here goes something, I guess. Okay, you can do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never snowplow, okay? No snowplows. Just keep it straight and you'll be fine. Here's okay. Thing you do on the 20. Straight. Do you go faster on the end run? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much. Same steepness, it's just longer. Well, just longer. Just longer, just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. Have it's fun. A bigger 20. Go ahead. You got this. I got it. <laughs> fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I go. the first time freaks you out. That's the only thing, it's so fun! Huh? 60 seems like nothing now. Woo! <laughs> See, that, that's the eternal weight of glory. What's your language? It's only the suspense at the top. That's all. See, one day, one day you're going to go down the jump. One day it's going to happen. Right now you're in the ski box. And you wish so badly, I wish so badly that I could be excused from all of the anxiety and all of the fear and all of the, just all of the trouble. I wish, I wish that I could just be excused from all of the awfulness. But on the other side of the jump, none of that gets erased. The difficulty here is not meaningless. It gets redeemed. And, and all of the difficulties and the hurts and the loss Somehow, they don't just get wiped away, they get, they get made more beautiful. The things that you lost are, are restored, but a thousandfold. It'll be the redemption of all things in eternity. No matter what you are going through, do not lose heart. Keep this in mind, you're in the ski box. You might have lost a child, or you lost a spouse, or you're, or you're lonely, or you have a job that's been taken away, or, or one that's hurt, your, your heart has been wrecked in some way, you're depressed, you feel guilty, you've abused somebody, you, all of those things will be redeemed on the other side of glory. And so what we need to remember is that wherever you're at, and if you're at that place, if you're, if you're deeply hurt, you are not alone. Most importantly, the cross and because of the cross, the people of the cross 
as well as they embrace that. In the meantime, in the meantime, you're not alone. Number five, how the cross speaks to our pain and our suffering. Number five, it is the ground of reasonable faith. I'm going to go kind of quickly through this one here. Um, Suffering tests our our trust in God, always, every single time we suffer. Because the question is, can, can can I really trust God? Can I have a reasonable faith in this God amidst all of just the overwhelming calamity and difficulty. Um, The book of Job, I think, gives one of the best answers um, as it goes to this this challenge. Job is overtaken by by personal tragedy in his life. Everything is taken away except his life. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Um, His friends tell him it's his fault. He wants his day in court with God. He knows he's innocent, and it doesn't seem fair, and he wants God to explain. He wants understanding. He wants to know he has a reasonable faith and that he can go on without jettisoning his mind in some way. And what's so fascinating is, you know, the the whole, the majority of the book, it's all this dialogue back and forth, and it's zillions of questions he asks and questions that ask him. Finally, at the end, he does kind of get his day in court. God shows up, but and he starts to ask, but then all of a sudden he realizes he's the one in the dock. He's the one being tried. And God says, okay, Job, you want understanding on, on this before you move forward. You have to have complete understanding before you will accept and trust me. Tell me, do you get and grasp the, uh, the earth and where, how it's positioned? Do you get? He goes through all of creation. He goes, do you, have, do you have comprehensive knowledge of this? Do you have comprehensive knowledge? Do you get this? And he riddles off like, 40-some questions to him. Do you have all knowledge of that? Job goes, no. He goes, but you accept it, don't you? You trust me in creation. Why will you not trust me in suffering? And I think for those of us on this side of the cross, if, if Job can say, I trust the God of creation, the God who does that, because of the cross, I can trust that God has not done damage to justice that it will be able to, to be made sense fully of in one day. And this, God's answer leads us into number six. It is the proof of God's solidarity with us and committed love. What's so fascinating to me, Job has all of these questions, philosophical questions. He doesn't get a philosophical answer, but what he gets is presence. He gets God's presence. God shows up and is there with him. That's what happens to people when Serve 6.8 goes out. They, they don't get everything met, but they get presence. People show up. When someone is hurting that you know, and you can't fix it, but you just sit next to them and you cry with them, you, they get your presence. So what God's telling us is there's a clue to the fix of the brokenness of the world through presence, somehow. And what's so fascinating to me are the two names that are given to Jesus in Scripture are Emmanuel, which means God with us, his presence, and Jesus, which means God saves. John Stott ends his book, The Cross of Christ, by saying this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. That lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, 
brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into darkness. That's the God for me, he says. See, only a God who would lay aside his own immunity to pain. Scott says, that's, that's the only God for me. See, our, our sufferings will never be made full sense of this side of eternity. I don't think the Bible gives us any sort of a false hope of that. But what it does tell us is our sufferings become more manageable in light of the cross. And there's still a question mark against human suffering. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But as Stott says, but we boldly stamp another mark, the cross. This is a symbol of divine suffering. Let me read for you. This is a little playlet that was written a number of years ago called A Long Silence. And then after this, we're going to take communion. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another camp, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. From far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred, what did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each group sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horrible, deformed, arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from among the throng of people assembled. And when last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. The incarnation. I'm going to ask our ushers to come to distribute the elements of communion. 
communion is a picture of this sentence being carried out, coming to live in our stead, to make that ultimate sacrifice. If you are a follower of Jesus, I will invite you to take some of those, hold on to them, and then we will, we will come back and take them together. Listen to the words of this song, if you would, call Always, as it talks about, my foes are many, they rise against me, my troubles surround me, chaos abounding, and listen to the solution, and then we'll take it together. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, in a prison campus, he was awaiting to be hanged, his death sentence, for helping the Jews in World War II Nazi Germany. In one of his letters, when darkness seemed to enclose upon him, there seemed no hope, he said, our only hope is the dying God, the suffering God. That's our only hope. That's what we hold in our hands. This is the mark that we place over all of the hurt in our life. The unanswered questions, we, we place this. Would you please stand with me if you're able? We have a God who abandoned his immunity to pain and he stepped into his world in order to ball it all up and swallow it. And he did that on the cross. Because one day he's going to destroy evil. And he had to remove evil from us or we would be destroyed in the process. And he did that. And with his followers, right before he walked and stretched his arms out voluntarily to be nailed to the cross, he took this meal, the Passover meal, he transformed it, he fulfilled it. And he said, I've taken it to the wall. I've completed it. And every time you celebrate this, and it is a celebration, you proclaim my death, the, that dark day in the past, but you look forward to when I come again. You're in the box right now, but there's going to be the bottom of the ski jump, and it'll all make sense. It'll all be redeemed. It'll all be beautiful. And that's what we proclaim every time that we, we take this bread representing his body broken for us and this cup, his blood shed. Let's take the bread. Heavenly Father, there are no words to describe our, our gratitude when we reflect, when we pause for just a moment and look at the reality of the cross. We look at the reality of the cross-shattered Christ. It shatters our lives. It shatters the, the callousness of our hearts. And if we take that into us, it makes us new. Father, would you transform us? I pray that your Holy Spirit would be, even right now this moment, just actively at work amongst relationships and hearts and lives, habits and thoughts of every single person here, tweaking, shaping, pruning, beautifying. We thank you for that process, God. May we be a safe place, Lord, where we can come to the foot of the cross and we know what's level there. None of us has the pride that we have on our own when we come to the cross. His pride withers and dies at the foot of the cross. Lord, as we go into this next week, Holy Week, I pray that we would prepare our hearts, God, that we would be people who are sensitive to what you are saying to us and that we look forward to the celebration of Easter where we proclaim 
that the generations past, he has risen and will come again. And we pray this in that matchless name, Jesus, the most beautiful name in all creation, the name above every name, Jesus. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen. It's 8 o'clock. If you've got kids, go grab them, bring them back. We've got some snacks in the back. Our, our prayer team is going to be up front. would love to pray with you guys. We'll see you next week, Wednesday night. Uh, remember, is the choir and orchestra. Have a good Friday in here. Have a great one.